This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Headaches in children are relatively common, and although there are many similarities to headaches in adults, there are some differences. Symptoms can be slightly different, and these differences can make it more difficult to establish a specific diagnosis in a child. This podcast will continue our series on headaches, and our topic will be headaches in children. We'll cover such topics as do infants get headaches? How often are headaches in children serious? And is the management of headaches in children any different than in adults? Our guest for this topic is Dr. Julianne Vanderplume, a neurologist at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. Julianne, welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start in just general terms. Are headaches different in children than in adults? They definitely are. I think sometimes people think, you know, oh, kids, they're just little adults, and that really is not the case. There's a few ways that they can be different. One is the actual conditions that they can have. So there are some things called episodic syndromes associated with migraine, and some of these are only in children, um, sometimes infants and toddlers. Some of them are just more common in children. And then other ways that things can be different is actually the sex ratios. So in adults, we see that headaches are often more common in women. But when we look at children, actually under the age of 12, usually it's more common or pretty equal between boys and girls as far as the rate of having headaches. And then, of course, symptoms, as you had mentioned, can be different in children than in adults, particularly when we think of things like migraine. Children are more likely to have shorter headaches, which sometimes can make it difficult to diagnose them because by the time you notice the child's even having a headache, it's gone. The location, kids often will have headaches more on both sides of their head, particularly migraines on both sides of their head compared to adults where it might just go to kind of one side or the other. And also for children, you need to often infer from their behavior. You know, a kid's not going to come up and say, oh, I've got photophobia, I've got phonophobia. You know, you're going to just notice that maybe they're putting down their remote control and leaving the video game that they love playing and going to a dark, quiet place, which might be, you know, a very odd behavior for your child if they're really into video games, but might be a clue that light and sound are really bothering them. Well, you mentioned headaches in infants. Do headaches really start that early in life? Yeah, so that's a really exciting topic that has become very popular right now in the pediatric neurology headache field. There has been speculation that infantile colic might actually be kind of the earliest form of migraine. And when we look at data, it seems that children who have infantile colic are more likely to go on to develop migraine later in life, as well as the fact that children who have parents who had infantile colic, they are more likely to have migraine as well. Well, that right there then is a difference from adults in that if you're talking about children who haven't completely developed language skills, you're taking a history through a parent and uh, you're unable to actually ask the patient to describe their symptoms. That would be rather challenging. It definitely can. <laughs> well, let's start by talking about the various types of benign headaches in kids. Describe some of those. In the community, probably what we see most commonly would be tension type headaches. But once the child is getting to seeing a doctor, 
probably what you're more likely going to be seeing is migraine. So migraine is very common in children and it can start you know, relatively early. As I had mentioned previously, you know, before the age of 12, it's more common in boys than it is in girls or pretty equal between boys and girls. And then after puberty, it becomes more common in girls. Migraine is a condition that as far as the effects on the person, it can have a huge impact on the child and on the family. And so it really is important to recognize it early so that you can try to intervene and so that the child isn't suffering and so that the family isn't terrified and disrupted by potentially um, the child's symptoms. How about cluster headaches? Do they occur in children? They can, but it's very, very rare. When we look at um, you know, the epidemiological studies, it seems like it's only been observed in about 0.03 to kind of 0.1% of the population. So very, very rare. So in terms of the types of headaches, that's kind of similar to adults in the tension quite common, but that often doesn't bring the patient in to see their provider. But migraine really stands out as the uh, majority of patients that you see as a healthcare provider. So migraine is common. Does migraine present any different in children? Do they get a uh, visual aura? Is it unilateral? Is it typically throbbing like an adult? Yeah, so auras can occur in children as well. As I had mentioned, as far as the features to migraine in children, it usually lasts shorter. So in adults, we say that the duration is between kind of four to 72 hours. In kids, it can be as short as two hours. And actually in past guidelines, it used to be as short as one hour, but then that got changed in the newest version of the International Classification of Headache Disorders. For children, it is often more on both sides of the head than just on one side of the head. They can still have the sensitivity to light and sound. They can still have the nausea and vomiting, but the child may not be able to express, you know, or describe those symptoms themselves. And then what's unique about the childhood episodic syndromes is that we actually can see a lot of kind of abdominal symptoms as well in children. So things like abdominal migraine or cyclical vomiting syndrome, which can commonly occur in school-age children, are rarer in teens or even in um, adults. We do see them sometimes, but really is something that is seen more commonly in sort of the school-age child. Mm -hmm. So when a child has migraine, are they likely or less likely to have migraine as they grow older into adulthood? There's good news and bad news a little bit. So about 50% of children and teens actually have resolution of their headaches within about six months. However, for adolescents who have their first migraine in their teen years, about 60% of them go on to continue having headaches later in life. So we do see that, you know, it seems like the younger you get headaches, maybe the more likely you are for you to grow out of them. And a lot of children do get better, but there is still a subset, especially those who have onset in their teens that will continue to have headaches later into life. And I think you mentioned earlier that there is a family history tendency towards migraines, correct? There definitely is. And it's a stronger tendency actually in those who have migraine with aura than those without. And migraine with aura only occurs in about 25 to 30% of patients with migraine. Okay. All right. Well, that's the benign types of headaches. Let's talk about the more serious headaches. What red flag symptoms should we be alert for as providers when we're seeing a patient that make us maybe suspect we're dealing with a more serious type of problem here? 
So for me, I always like using uh, something called the SNOOP4 mnemonic. I think it's always important to remember that when you're taking a history from a patient, they're not just going to walk in and tell you the things you want to hear. You do really need to ask about these things to make sure that you've sort of crossed them off your list of worrisome features. And so the SNOOP4 mnemonic, the S stands for systemic symptoms or conditions. And so that would be, you know, looking for signs of fever, weight loss. Do they have a history of being immunocompromised or cancer? Are they on immunomodulatory therapy? The N would stand for neurological signs or symptoms. The O stands for onset. From a pediatric standpoint, if there is a new onset headache in a child younger than five years old, that does sort of make us a little bit more concerned. The other O again stands for onset, but in this case, it's thunderclap onset. So a really rapid, very severe headache. And that one can be sometimes hard to elicit on history because if you ask anyone, well, was it the worst headache of your life? they might say yes. So the way that I like to ask it is how quickly did your headache reach its maximum intensity? Was it seconds? Was it minutes? Was it hours? If they're kind of having to think about it, it's probably not a thunderclap headache. That's something they would remember. And if they say it was fast, clarify what fast means because fast to them might be 30 minutes. Fast to us is, you know, under a minute of it reaching its peak intensity. Mm -hmm. Then as far as the P's, we have progression. So is this a headache that's getting worse or sort of change in pattern? We also have papilledema or pulsatile tinnitus. We have postural. So it is it, you know, worsened by being upright or worsened by being flat. And then we also have precipitated by Valsalva uh, or straining or coughing or sneezing or things like that. And I think that, you know, helps you keep in mind really the big bad things that you need to be looking out for that'll help you identify patients that could have a secondary headache disorder. What are some of the more serious secondary headaches that you can see in kids? Unfortunately, children are at risk of some subtypes of brain tumors compared to adults. And it's particularly the posterior fossa brain tumors that we see in children, especially very young children. And so that's why that under the age of five is where we really get concerned. If the child is reporting that they are, or if the parent, I should say, is reporting that they're, you know, the child's waking in the middle of the night, is waking first thing in the morning and vomiting, is reporting an occipital headache, then we do worry about that. But the occipital headache historical point is important to touch on because the occipital headache historical point has sometimes resulted in a lot of children getting imaging that maybe don't need to have imaging. If we look at kids that are coming into a outpatient setting to talk about headaches and report an occipital headache and have a normal neurologic examination, the chance of them having an abnormality on their MRI scans is actually pretty low in the studies. But if you have a child who's going into the emergency room reporting an occipital headache and has an abnormal neurologic exam, then the positive predictive value of them having something on an MRI scan or a CT scan is quite high. So context and abnormalities on neurologic exam are actually sort of the more, most important things there. And really it's the abnormalities on neurologic exam when we look in the studies as far as the chance of you finding something on any imaging. Mm -hmm. How about infectious causes? So infectious causes are definitely the most common. I was talking about sort of the most serious as far as the posterior fossa tumors, but when we look at secondary causes for children as far as headaches go, 
infectious causes. So, you know, colds, flus, sinus infections, probably now COVID as well. And then also post-traumatic. So, you know, concussions and things like that. Those would be the two big ones as far as secondary causes. Mm-hmm. And other than migraine, are there other vascular headaches that kids tend to get? I don't know, aneurysms, are they, I would imagine those are unlikely in kids? Those are unlikely. I think if we're thinking about congenital vascular malformations, that would probably be a patient where you might have a suspicion based on other symptoms that the child has, based on developmental issues, based on them potentially having had seizures, based on a head circumference, or them having other features of a syndrome that might sort of tip you off. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned earlier findings of papilledema. What other physical exam should we perform in kids as we're evaluating their headaches? Yeah. So for a child, obviously we would want to do a neurologic exam as we would for an adult, as far as the components, it might not be possible to do a neurologic exam though, as you would do for an adult. And so often it involves a lot of play and a lot of observation to sort of just see them going through the motor components as far as their strength and making the sensory exam into sort of a game. But things that are more unique to children would be things like head circumference. So especially in a younger child that is having headaches, you definitely want to make sure that you check their head circumference to ensure that there aren't signs that they could have hydrocephalus or some other congenital abnormality resulting in a larger head. And then also you would want to be doing a developmental assessment to make sure that they're reaching their milestones because if this is a child that now has signs of developmental delay and has a headache, again, maybe there's a greater reason to consider doing imaging. The other population, of course, is children who have developmental delay or intellectual disability or physical disabilities that might prevent you from getting a full history. And in those circumstances, you might have a lower threshold to consider additional evaluations just because you're not able to get the history you like. There might be other features on the physical exam that are a little bit hard to assess for those patients. Mm When we're dealing with adults and we get a history of what sounds like a migraine and they've been describing these headaches for several years, we're probably not likely to get head imaging, but in child, we may be seeing them for their first migraine. Do you think head imaging is more common in kids than it is in adults? I think, you know, definitely when I said like the occipital headache, that unfortunately leads to a lot of children getting uh, imaging that might not need it. The other thing that makes it a little bit complicated is that, you know, when we look at things like the AN guidelines of regarding imaging for children, one of the criteria that actually had a higher risk of potentially finding a secondary cause was a shorter duration headache. So if the headache had been there for just less than a month, that was actually potentially a risk factor. Now that gets complicated because if you're the first person seeing a child, and the headache was within a month, then, you know, are you going to image them right away? And so I think there it's important to consider other aspects of the patient's history. For example, if there is a lack of family history of headaches, that also is a risk factor. But if you have a child you're seeing for the first time and everyone in the family has migraines, then maybe that could actually be reassuring to you. The feature that seems to have the highest predictive value as far as finding a secondary cause is the abnormal neurologic exam or neurological symptoms. So if the patient is having seizures, if the patient has any focal neurologic deficits, you know, those are the things that actually really correlate highly with finding something on imaging. Okay. Well, let's talk about management. In general terms, how do you approach the management 
of headaches in kids? When we think about management, there's kind of two big categories. We have our acute treatments, also called rescue treatments, and then we have our preventive treatments. And so our acute treatments or rescue treatments are really strategies or interventions that the patient uses in the moment of the headache to get relief, while preventive treatments are something that the patient would be taking to try to reduce the frequency and the severity of their headaches. Now, all patients who have headaches really should have a rescue or an acute treatment available, but not every patient requires having a preventive treatment. And preventive treatments are really considered when patients have very frequent headaches, so usually more than at least once per week, or maybe they have very severe headaches, or maybe they have a subtype of headaches that you know you really just don't want to ever get, like let's say a hemiplegic migraine or a migraine with brainstem aura, and so you really just want to minimize the chance of those episodes happening at all. The other important aspect is lifestyle. And lifestyle is important for all patients to consider because sometimes if you're not sleeping well, not eating well, your stress is out of control, no matter how many interventions we provide, it might not be able to sort of overcome those other obstacles. But a lot of patients really manage their lifestyle and still have issues with their headaches and then feel guilty like it's their fault. And I think it's important to reassure patients that lifestyle is helpful, but sometimes we need to do more as well. Mm -hmm. In terms of pharmacologic treatment, starting with the acute or rescue treatments, are the same products used in kids as adults, triptans and so forth? So the same categories of products are used, but not all of the products are FDA approved in pediatric patients. The most commonly used would be over-the-counter therapies like ibuprofen, naproxen, and acetaminophen. And those actually can be very effective, but it's important to ensure that you're dosing per weight because sometimes patients are being underdosed just because we're not really considering the fact that maybe this eight-year-old is actually the size of a 10-year-old and, and so you should maybe be dosing it based on their size and not their age. The other thing also to consider with pediatric patients is the route of administration because not all children can swallow pills. And so you want to make sure that you've considered whether they need to have a liquid formulation available. If the over-the-counter therapies aren't effective, then triptans are available in the pediatric age range. And there are four that are currently FDA approved. So there is almotriptan, there is zolmatriptan, there is rizotriptan, and then there is a combination naproxen sumatriptan pill. And amongst those, the rizotriptan is FDA approved down to the age of six years old. All the others are for patients 12 and up. So sumatriptan alone is not FDA approved? So technically not. That's It wasn't studied, but because of the fact that the sumatriptan naproxen combination was FDA approved, we use it in pediatric patients as a standalone. But technically it wasn't FDA approved as a standalone, which is, is kind of silly. It is, yeah. <laughs> so how about chronic suppressive therapy? What uh, pharmacologic products are used for that? When it comes to the preventive treatments, technically right now, Topiramate is the only one that is FDA approved for preventive treatment, and that's only in adolescents, so 12 years and older. So if you look at the options that are available from an FDA approval standpoint, it's pretty limited. However, we also have neuromodulatory devices that have been FDA cleared in pediatric patients. And so that includes the supraorbital 
nerve stimulator. So that's a device that's stuck onto the forehead, the vagal nerve stimulator, which is a device that's applied to the neck, and then a transcranial magnetic stimulator, which is a device that's applied to the back of the head. And so those devices are all FDA cleared down to 12 years of age. And they actually are interesting because they can be used for both preventive treatment as well as for acute treatment. So it's sort of a mixed treatment effect, which is nice in the sense that we don't have to worry about things like medication overuse as we might with some of the oral pills. Now, otherwise, if we say, okay, well, we have these neuromodulatory devices and we have topiramate, that doesn't seem like very much. We do have to use a lot of other treatments off label when we have patients that either are not appropriate for these interventions or have tried them and have not had benefit from these interventions. And then also one thing that we really, really encourage for our patients and try to prioritize if available is actually behavioral interventions with things like cognitive behavioral therapy, because they have some of the best evidence, but are limited sometimes by access and cost. You haven't mentioned botulinum toxin, so I assume that's not approved for kids? It is not currently FDA approved for children. We do use it in our clinic for patients that have tried and failed other therapies. It can be sometimes difficult to access because of the fact that it isn't specifically FDA approved for pediatric patients. And as with adults, most insurance providers require that you try and fail at least two or three classes of other preventive agents. And in children, you know, the other commonly used oral preventive agents would be things like propranolol or would be things like amitriptyline. And the most recent AAN guideline regarding pediatric migraine treatment preferentially chose sort of propranolol given its more mild side effect profile. Okay. Well, Juliana, you've given us a lot of very useful information. Can you kind of give us maybe two or three key points that summarize our discussion regarding headaches in children? First of all, headaches are common in children and headaches should be taken seriously. I have so far not encountered a patient who was, you know, sort of putting it on with a headache to get out of school or get out of some activity. So kids really should be taken seriously. Headaches can have a huge impact on the child or adolescent as well as on the family. And so even though it might seem like we don't have a lot of different treatment options available, it is important to explore treatment options with the family and with the patient because we do want to make sure that they have something available. A lot of children do get better, but many don't. We don't want to just say, oh, don't worry, you're going to get better and sort of send them off on their way. We want to make sure that they have tools and strategies to support them in conditions that can be really debilitating. Well, we've been discussing headaches in children with Dr. Julianne Vanderplum, a neurologist at the Mayo Clinic. Juliana, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. It was a delightful interview. Thank you. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.